Man, I'm ready to get into the word. Are you ready to hear it? If y'all want to hear this, like I feel like preaching, it's going to be good tonight. How many of you brought a Bible with you? Come on, if you got a Bible, wave it in the air like you just do care. Come on, I know you get the word every week. Come on, some of your Bibles are glowing. I love it. (laughs) Charged up your Bible last night. Uh, I want to look at two passages of scripture tonight. I want to look at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And then also John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 8, starting at verse 1, and we'll land at verse 11. And then John chapter 1, verse 14. Once you got John chapter 8, why don't you say, yeah. yeah. If you're still looking for it, say, hold on. I'll give you some time. Come on. And it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and he had set her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Can you say amen? What a beautiful passage. And just to add an addendum to this, I want to look at what might be, might be my favorite verse of scripture in all of the Bible. John chapter one, verse number 14. And it declares, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. I don't want to preach before I preach Embassy City, so don't count this as my preaching time. But, but I want you, j- just for a moment, to consider all of the adjectives that we could ascribe to Jesus. How many know there's a lot of adjectives? We could say he is faithful. We could say he is loving. We could say he is merciful. We can say he is good. We can say he is mighty. We can say he is powerful. How many know we could keep going on and on and on and on all day? The list would go on. There would be several commas. I found it intriguing that John, in verse 14 of chapter 1, skips the commas, skips the list, and goes straight to a conjunction and says, when you see Jesus you will see two things, grace and truth. He says that the character of Christ is so concise that when you see Jesus, all you see is grace and truth. We had good church today. I encountered Jesus. What did you encounter? And grace. And then he goes on to say that he's full of it. Jesus is full of it. Oh, no, I didn't realize what I just said. 
But that'd be a funny sermon title, wouldn't it? Actually, that is my sermon title. I want to preach tonight for four hours and 32 minutes from the thought, Jesus is full of it. Jesus is full of it. Do me one more favor. Look at your neighbor for the last time and say, neighbor, Jesus is full of it, and you should be too. Come on, let's pray before we go into this tonight. Ooh, this is going to be good. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. I sense here tonight already. Holy Spirit, do whatever you want to do in this place. God, we've not gathered here tonight out of religious routine. We've not come here tonight to be entertained. But God, we have come to be drastically changed. Speak to us so clearly. And when we leave, let us say it was so good to have been in the house of the Lord. If somebody loves Jesus. Say amen. amen. Say amen again. Amen. Quick little sermonic survey before we delve into this. How many of you would say just by a showing of hands that you were raised in church? Can I see your hand if you were raised in church? Oh, Lord, that's almost everybody. Hold on. Keep it lifted. Raised in church? I just need to see who needs the counseling. Uh, no, no, I'm playing. I'm playing. Um, I, I will, I will lift my hand with you. I'll lift my hand with you and let you know that I, too, was raised in church. And if you lifted up your hand, then you are acutely aware of the fact that the life of a church kid is distinctly different than the life of a regular kid. Oh, come on, somebody. There are trials and tribulations and situations that you go through as a church kid that other kids aren't even apprised of. I know this too well because I am a church kid. I was raised in church. Growing up in my household, going to church was not optional, okay? It was not a democracy. It was a dictatorship, okay? Every day the doors are open, we had to be in church. In fact, I vividly remember being a kid, and one Sunday I got bold and I got brave, and I told my daddy, I told my daddy, ooh, I I told my Nigerian daddy, okay, I said, uh, I ain't going this Sunday. I don't feel like it. Told my Nigerian daddy that. And do you know what my Nigerian daddy said to me? He said, let me tell you something, okay? No, 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 no. Let me tell you something. You have two options, huh? You can get out of that bed and go to church or I can kill you. And we will go to church and have your funeral. But either way, you will be in church. Because as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. <laughs> People, that is so true. <laughs> Some of y'all are clapping at the abuse I endured. Um, dinners, dinners were different in our house. Dinners were different in our house because you could not eat your food. You could not touch your meal without my mama hitting you with this question. What's your favorite scripture? Before you could eat your food, you had to give a scripture. Before you could eat the meal, had to give a scripture. I remember one dinner being so hungry and so exasperated. I looked at my mama and said, Jesus wept. Give me the chicken. Why are you playing with people's food? It's just the environment that I grew up in. And to be honest tonight, I'm thankful that's the environment that I grew up in because it has produced within me an insatiable desire for the Word of God. I am obsessed with the Word of God. It is the hinge upon which my faith has its mobility. It is the irreducible substantive essence of what it means to know who God is. To those of you who think that book you're holding is some boring antiquated book that doesn't really relate to your life, you have lost your mind. That is the only book that's still alive. It is the only book that's still breathing. It is the only book that has power. 
it, it's the only book that was written in antiquity, but yet it can speak to the specificity of your life. There is nothing like the word of God. And, and I love the word, but come on, let's be honest. We all have our favorites, don't we? We have our favorite sections. And I think my favorite literary genre has to be the gospels. The gospels are my favorite. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just give me those four and no more. In fact, I've spent so much time in the gospels. I feel like they're close personal friends of mine. I call them Matt, Marky, Mark, Uncle Luke, and little John. I, I love the gospels because it's in the gospels that we get to see the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. I get to see how he walked, how he talked, how he moved, how he encountered different individuals. Uh, one scholar said that the gospels are Christology in narrative form. That's just a fancy way to say that the gospels are the closest thing that we have of a biography of the greatest man who ever walked the face of this earth and his name is Jesus. I, I love the gospels. Here's what I really love. Are y'all bored yet? Okay, I love that these four gospel writers are talking about the same Jesus, but they do it in totally different ways. Totally different. Almost like four film directors who've been given the same subject to film, but have each been given their own cinematic license to film it. Each one of them give us a different HD view of who Jesus really is. And that's why I'm glad John is our director for today. See, see, if you like long, boring documentaries, you got to read the book of Matthew, okay? Because Matthew, he is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, so he begins the long and laborious process of letting you know that Jesus is the fulfillment of over 300 Old Testament prophecies that were given in a 1500 year time span. Come on, anybody in here ever read Matthew chapter 1? Get you some espresso when you read it, okay? Excitement level is right up there with the book of Leviticus, okay? For the whole first chapter, we are just scripturally inundated with baby daddy after baby daddy after baby daddy, okay? That's chapter 1. The, the, those of you who like sci-fi movies, sci-fi movies, you gotta read the book of Luke because Luke is a medical doctor. So Luke goes into great detail to explain the miracles that Christ did and how his miracles could do what modern medicine could not do. Uh, those of you who like those movies ooh, where there is action, where things get blown up and people get beat up, you got to go to the book of Mark. Mark is Jesus Christ in action. Mark's so gangster, he don't even have time for baby Jesus. No, for real, read it. You will not find a manger in the book of Mark. This dude skips Christmas and goes straight to full-grown Jesus with hair on his chest, smelling like Old Spice. Mark is not playing games with you. Mark wants to let you know with clarity and precision that before there was a Russell Crowe in Gladiator, before there was a Mel Gibson in Braveheart, before there was a Denzel, my twin, hello, before there was any of them, please believe there was a King Jesus. And every time he stepped in a situation, it came under his divine authority because he wasn't just a good man he was a God man he was God wrapped up in flesh and walking among us but but John John whoo, sorry fellas John is a chick flick it is a chick flick. If you like the movie Dear John, read John. John is very existential. He is all about the love of Christ. John's gospel pulsates with the personality of Christ. Who else but John could give us the Magna Carta of our faith and say that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Who else but John, the disciple that's always laying his head on the chest of Jesus. Jesus. He can hear his heartbeat. No wonder it is his intimacy with Jesus that gives him incredible insight to his character. You do know John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Ooh, 
Never mind the dude wrote that about himself. <laughs> he said, yeah, I, I'm his favorite, and I just want to let y'all know right now. This is the gospel of John. When he begins his gospel, he doesn't even start with Jesus' earthly lineage. It's almost like he's retweeting the book of Genesis. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. And then in verse 14, he just drops this bomb and says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That verse right there. How many of you know this is the power of our gospel? The fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The reason we can lift up holy hands and worship tonight at NBC City is because the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. This is the hope that we have as believers that the word became flesh. Okay, let me calm down. See, one of the challenges, one of the challenges we have living in a culture that is anti to the things of God is that many people want you to give them a foolproof argument that there is a God. So let's say, give me your argument. Give me your foolproof argument. Prove to me that there is a God. And how many know we could have debates and discussions and diatribes, but the reality is whenever God wanted to reveal who he was to humanity, he did not send a foolproof argument. He sent a foolproof person. Jesus is the argument that there is an existence of a God. He sent a person. The power is in the person. Okay, let me see if I can go a little bit deeper. Okay, if, if, I, if I was sick tonight and I was to get some deathly disease, here's what I don't want you to do. Don't just give me a medical book. Don't give me a medical book. Go call a doctor. You know why? The doctor personifies the principles that are within the medical book. Ooh, some of y'all going to get it in a minute. Okay, if I am in trouble and I'm facing some legal issue, please don't just throw me a law book. Go get a lawyer. You know why? The lawyer personifies the principles that are withheld in the law book. Who, if I am being robbed, if I'm being robbed and they're taking my Air Jordan collection, please don't just give me a book with the penal code. Call the popo. You know why? The police officer personifies the principles that are withheld within the penal code. Hear me, when all of us were stuck in our sin and we had no hope of redemption, we didn't just need the law. We didn't just need the word. We had to have Jesus because Jesus personifies the principles that are in the word of God. Oh, come on, somebody. You ought to just give them some praise if you are thankful for who Jesus is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, we beheld the wonder of his glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Wait, wait a minute, John. You can't put those two words together. How in the world can Jesus be full of grace and truth. Come on, people. One of these things is not like the other. If there ever was a paradox, it is right here in this verse. The fact that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Come on. These two things don't go. This is beauty and the beast. How in the world can Jesus be full of grace and truth? You can't put those two things together. Any husbands in the house? Can you make some noise? Any husbands? Come on, every husband will tell you you can't put them two things together. Come on now, you go shopping with your wife and she comes out of that dressing room and she says, sweetheart, does this make me look fat? Come on, brother, you got one option. Grace, 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 grace. Girl, no, it doesn't look fat. That looks awesome. You should buy six of them just like that. If you go to truth, it's going to be a cold night on the couch for you. Grace, how can Jesus be full of grace 
and truth. It seems to be an inconsistency. These two things don't go together full of grace and truth. Let's just stop for a moment and think about the grace of God. How many are thankful for the grace of God? Oh, come on, somebody, to think that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you've done it with, that God's grace can reach you right where you are. To think that Jesus would endure a hell that he didn't deserve so that we can be the beneficiaries of a heaven that we don't deserve. Come on, how many are thankful for the grace of God? If you look at grace and you don't call it amazing, you don't really know what grace is. His grace is so intoxicating. I thank God for his grace but right when you rest in his grace then you have his truth his standard that is so perfect that is so flawless that on your best day your righteousness is as filthy rags if I say it the way I want to say it your righteousness is still ratchet on your best day God's standard watch this is so perfect it's so flawless it would be like us having a contest tonight to see who could touch the top of the ceiling of this church the top of the building of this church. How many know some of us would get higher than others, but all of us would still be a long way off from the top of the building? That is God's standard. That is God's grace. That is God's truth, rather. And yet he tells us that Jesus is full of grace and truth. doesn't seem like these two things go together. If I was to do a survey, a poll in this room tonight, personality test, most of us in here would lean towards one of these extremities. Very few of us are balanced. Like, we got grace people in here today, all the grace people. And you're like, oh, why can't we just love? Why can't we just all get along? Come on, you probably probably got greeted by a grace person today. They just had a big old smile on their face. And you're like, what they happy about? I got bills to pay. And you know, you know those grace people. They're just all about love. And they want to hold hands and sing kumbaya and say, why can't we all just get along? Just, just grace, grace, grace for the whole race. Just grace. You got the grace people in here. That, and they're quick to love and they're quick to forgive but sometimes in their effort to show grace they feel like in order to show the grace they have to remove the standard and they lower the truth but then you got the truth people in here and the truth people they're like no no I'm going to tell you about yourself no I'm going to tell you the truth see see, no you don't want me to tell you because you can't handle the truth oh truth people will tell you like it is they will shoot you and not wait to see you hit the ground truth people will hit up your Instagram and Facebook page and they never liked a photo ain't never said anything before but will say the most outlandish thing and you're like where did I mean truth people will point that finger in a minute truth people tend to forget that when you pointed that finger you got four of them pointing right back at you and they tend to forget that that same standard they are so quick to hold they can't even stand up to themselves and yet Jesus says I am full of grace and truth how can he be both the gospel flies on the wings of grace and truth see truth without grace is meaningless. Grace without truth, or excuse me, grace without truth is meaningless. Truth without grace is mean. (laughs) But grace and truth is medicine. Jesus says, I am medicine. And if you're gonna be like me, you have to be full of grace and truth. Not 50% truth, 50% grace. 100% truth and 100% grace. I don't want to harp on this too long, but I found it intriguing. I was talking to a person that plays the violin, 
and they were tightening their strings on the violin. And I was like, how do you know when the violin is right? He said, it's really an interesting process. He said, because if the violin is too loose and you don't take care of it, whatever goes, it will mess up the playing of the violin because the strings are too loose and you won't hear the melody the way you're supposed to. Conversely, if the strings are too tight, you can be playing the violin and you can snap and break the strings if they're too tight. So in order to hear the beautiful music that is encapsulated within the violin, you have to have the perfect tension, grace and truth. And Jesus says, I am the total thing of grace and truth. And we see it in this text today in John chapter 8 because the Bible says Jesus, he's just teaching in the temple. And all of a sudden in the middle of his sermon, middle of his sermon, the Pharisees come in the church kick open the door. Jesus! Jesus, stop the sermon. Stop the sermon. You know how religious people look. They always look like they smell something in the room there. And they come in and say, Jesus, stop the sermon. And they totally interrupt his message and bring a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery, perhaps just has a sheet wrapped around her and say, Jesus, stop the sermon. You want to talk about an interruption. This was an interruption. Now, first of all, if you study Gospels, you know Jesus, he was used to interruptions. I mean, come on, he was always getting interrupted. Remember one time he was preaching and they used to cut a hole in a roof and started throwing a dude down the middle of the hole in the roof. He was used to introduction, I mean, interruptions. Come on, one time he's on his way to heal somebody else and this crazy lady with issues, with issues, starts pulling on the hem of his garment. He was used to being interrupted all the time. Come on, you remember one time he was walking and this ghetto dude named Bartimaeus, you remember this ghetto dude named Bartimaeus just started this dude just ghetto just started shouting Jesus Lord son of David have mercy on me have mercy on me you know he was from the hood you know he was from the hood because here's how I know he was from the hood because they said be quiet and the more they told him to be quiet the louder <laughs> this dude got he said Lord have mercy on me I mean he was always <laughs> getting interrupted but 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 ladies and gentlemen this is a different interruption. Whew. This is not somebody that has sickness. This is not somebody that is looking for the miracle to be healed. Whew. This is somebody who has been caught in the act of adultery. Not only that, consider the environment. Consider the environment that they brought this woman to. The Bible says Jesus was in the temple. Whew. The temple. Whew. They brought the lady in the church. Okay, okay. I don't know how y'all read y'all's Bible. Here's how I read my Bible. I imagine what it would be like to be in that particular environment. Can you imagine on this beautiful Saturday evening, as I'm preaching tonight, all of a sudden, if somebody busts through those doors, comes in here with a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery, and says, Robert, stop the sermon. We just caught this woman in adultery. She should be stoned. What do you have to say? My name is Robert. You're looking for Ross, Tim Ross. That people get us confused all the time. Let, let me go on and get him for you. Can you imagine? Oh, the shock that was in the room that day. Can you imagine the gasp of it? That was in the room. If there was ever a scripture, you needed Olivia Pope. This, this, is, this is a scandal if there ever was one. Oh, and I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that of all the eyebrows that were raised in the temple that day, of all the people that <gasps> sucked air, there was one person who never raised his eyebrows, who never went 
and that person is Jesus. I think this is a good place to insert this thought, that Jesus is not shocked by your sin. Jesus is not shocked by your sin. I know you might be shocked by what you did, and I know the enemy might have come in your mind and said, how dare you even step in the church with what you did. You might be shocked, but Jesus is not shocked, nor is he intimidated by sin. As a matter of fact, that's what he came to do. He came to take the sting out of death and to defeat sin forever, and you need to know that Jesus is not shocked by your sin. People might be shocked by your sin. You might be shocked by your sin, but Jesus is not shocked. The Pharisees were pulling a TMZ. Come on, they thought because it was such a scandal that they were going to get a rise out of Jesus. But Jesus is not shocked by the sin. How many of you know we see sin in categories, don't we? Don't we? We see sin in categories like, oh, there's big sin and there's, uh, there's little sin. Jesus doesn't see sin like that. He just sees sin as sin. And they thought they were going to get a rise out of Jesus because this was a sexual sin. No, Jesus sees sin as sin. I'm always intrigued by how we have this mentality that sin comes in different categories. And we turn up our nose over people who don't have the same type of sin that we have. I learned this principle not too long ago, uh, actually here in Texas at the Texas State Fair. Uh, last year, I went to the State Fair, and uh, I was in the State Fair, and I was actually trying to watch my weight. How many know you don't go to the State Fair <laughs> when you're trying to watch your weight? But I was trying to do good, and I was there with my brother, and, and we're having a good time perusing through the fair. And, and my brother gets in line, and he goes to the stand, and he gets something that really should be sin. I mean, this food should be sin. I mean, this is not even, it's somewhere in a book that has not been found, some scroll. This food has to be sin. It's one thing to get a Snickers. <laughs> it's another thing when you fry this Snickers, okay? And, and I'm looking at him like, how in the world can you eat this fried Snickers? I am tripping. But then I said, I'm doing good. I'm not going to do like my brother. And so I go and I got me an apple at the state fair. Hello. Yes, yeah, spiritual. Got me an apple. Now, it was a candied apple. It had caramel and chocolate and, and, and some nuts on it, but it was still an apple. And, and I'm eating my apple, and I'm feeling good about myself, and I'm judging him for eating his fried Snickers. And I got to the house because I'm counting my calories. <laughs> Guess what? Same amount of calories are in the fried Snickers as the candied apple. I'm like, I should have gone and got me the Snickers too, but isn't it funny how because I thought it was an apple that I was justified and that's how we do, people. We say, well, hmm, I got this candied apple. I'm good. I can't believe they're eating fried Snickers. And God sees sin as sin. And the Pharisees thought they could stump Jesus because this was a scandalous sin. So they say, Jesus, what do you say about this woman? And the Bible says, hear me, that they were doing this to trap him. Doing this to trap him. Another version says to test him. Now, here's where you kind of got to give some credit to the Pharisees. Because how many know, ladies and gentlemen, this was an amazing trap. This was a brilliant trap. I gotta give the Pharisees some props because this was a good trap. Here's why it was a good trap. Because the Pharisees were right. They were right. The law of Moses was clear that the punishment for adultery was stoning. The Pharisees were right. Because you know the Pharisees, they knew the law, they knew the word, they had the whole Torah memorized, they knew the word. But isn't it funny how you can be right and still be wrong. <laughs> Isn't it funny how you can say the right words but still have a filthy, cantankerous spirit? Isn't it funny how you can know the letter of the law but miss the spirit of the law? My grandmama used to say, it's one thing to know the word, it's another thing to know the author. 
See, the, the Pharisees had lots of, but, but, but you, can't, you can't throw them away because they were right. The law of Moses was clear that the punishment for stoning was sin. So if Jesus says, wait a minute, don't stone her. Stop the stoning. They're going to go, oh, wait a minute, Jesus. We already downloaded your podcast, and you told us that you didn't come to abolish the law. You came to fulfill it. So what do you mean we can't stone her because the law is clear? On the other hand, if Jesus says, you're right, let the stoning begin. Get a big rock. Knock her out. <laughs> then the message and ministry of Jesus becomes, don't come to Jesus and receive love. Come to Jesus and get stoned. Yeah. <laughs> And that didn't sound good back then. It don't sound good today. Come to Jesus and, and get, st okay, no, okay. <laughs> so what is Jesus going to do? This is a huge predicament. If he says don't stone her, he tramples on the law. If he says stone her, he tramples on the woman. What in the world is he going to do? Ooh, if this was me, I would have been sweating. I would have been passing out. I would have been looking for Google or a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Oh, this would have gotten me because I am an ordinary man. But how many know Jesus was not an ordinary man? He was God in flesh. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. There is no scheme that can trump your God. God. Ooh, here's what I love about God. I love God not just because he has power, but because he has wisdom. Ooh, that, that's a good thing to have power and to have wisdom. There's nothing scarier than to have somebody in power, but does not have any wisdom. Hello, somebody. That's why I'm praying for our nation. Jesus, we need people in power that have wisdom, but Jesus had power and he had wisdom and they thought they could stump Jesus on the word that he was. Ooh. Jesus was so brilliant, and they didn't even realize it. Ooh, I was just thinking while I was reading this text, I wonder what Jesus' IQ was. Ooh, can you imagine what his IQ, actually scratch that, scratch that. Jesus couldn't have IQ. Delete that, Ooh, delete that backspace. He couldn't have IQ because IQ stands for intelligence quotient. And a quotient is a formula that is used to measure something. And Jesus' intelligence is immeasurable. So Jesus didn't even have IQ, he just had I. Maybe that's why he said I am that I am because that's the only thing that I need. There is nothing that comes my way that I'm trying to figure out. You can trust my plan. You can trust my will because I am Ooh, that I am. Somebody give I am some praise in this place tonight. Oh, that's a word for somebody right now because you're struggling and you're trying to figure out this situation in your life and you just need to rest in the fact that you serve a God that knows the end from the beginning. Come on, he has all power. He doesn't have an inferiority complex. He has an authority complex because heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Ooh, he knows the end from the beginning. Can I just brag on our God? You understand that he is omnipotent, has all power. He is omniscient, infinite in all awareness, understanding, and insight. That means who? Nothing has ever occurred to your God. Nothing. Nothing. God has never said, you know what just occurred to me? <laughs> He has never said that. You, you understand that your God could never learn anything or think of anything that he didn't already think of. Because if he can think of something he hadn't already think of, thought of, that means he can learn something. And he can't learn anything because he knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. So you can trust his plan for your life. I thought they could trump him. And they said, Jesus, the law of Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say? The Bible says that Jesus, he looks at them, 
hatred in their eyes. He looks at this woman who had to be embarrassed. Surely she wanted to meet Jesus, but not like this. Because now her private issue has gone public. And there's nothing like the shame of a private issue going public. No doubt her head was down. They already had the rocks to stone her. Jesus, what do you say? The Bible says Jesus turned his back, gets on his knee, and starts doodling in the dirt. <laughs> Jesus, the law of Moses says she should be stoned. What do you have to say? And just starts doodling in the dirt. And the Bible says, as though he did not hear. Jesus, we demand an answer. Where's the law? She should be stoned. What do you say? Oh, you want to know what I have to say? <laughs> Ignores them and starts doodling in the dirt. I think I need to parenthetically pause here and let somebody know you need to take your cues from Jesus that whenever the enemy comes in your life, it comes in your temple with all kinds of craziness, with all kinds of drama, quit being so quick to respond and react to the enemy. Sometimes the best thing you can say is nothing at all. Sometimes you just need to turn your back on your haters, on the naysayers, and get down on your knees and remind yourself that he is your judge, he is your defender, that the battle is the Lord that he will fight for you come on somebody you don't have to say anything at all just get down on your knees and know he is the author and the perfecter of your faith Ooh, some of you are so quick to respond to the chaos of the enemy and sometimes you don't need to say anything at all you do know that silence can never be misquoted come on somebody sometimes the best response is nothing at all because watch this there is a difference between actually a reaction and a response there's a difference between a reaction and a response the enemy does this right here he comes in your life with drama he comes in your life with chaos because he's trying to get a reaction God's not called you to be a reactor. He's called you to be a responder. There's a difference between a reactor and a responder. When you react to a situation, you react the chaos that came into your life. And I'm thankful that Jesus was a responder and not a reactor. If Jesus was a reactor, how many know this text would read a lot differently? Oh, can you imagine if your savior was a reactor and not a responder? This text would be different because when Jesus came, when they came in the room with the chaos, he would have just reacted the chaos that came in. So they would say, Jesus, we caught her in the act. What do you say? He would have been like, why y'all keep picking on me, man? Don't y'all know I'm trying to do the will of my father? Y'all keep pissing on me. Don't you know I'm the son of God? Can't serve a savior like that. I'm thankful that he wasn't a reactor. He was a responder. God's called you as a believer not to be a reactor, be a responder. I'm glad when you call 911, it's an re emergency response team, yeah. not emergency react. Can you imagine if it was an emergency react team? You calling 911, oh, somebody help, my son, my son. And they're, ah, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You'd be like, I called you. <laughs> no, they, they don't react. They just <laughs> respond. And Jesus' response to the law is <laughs> to get down on the ground begins to write in the dirt. 
I'm almost done, I promise. But we got to talk about this writing in the dirt because this is a hot topic in biblical theology because everybody wants to know what was Jesus writing in the ground that day? Oh, everybody wants to know. That's one of those questions that are going to be in 21 questions of heaven. What in the world were you writing in the dirt that day? And there's so many theories that have been postulated as to what Jesus wrote in the ground that day. Uh, one person said that he wrote the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Another scholar said that he wrote, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, your mind and strength. Another scholar postulated, a theory that I love, that Jesus wrote the names and the sin of each one of the men standing there that day. So they looked down in the dirt, saw their name with the sin next to it, and said, you know what, I needed to watch Netflix anyway. I was trying to keep up and just <laughs> went away. I don't know if that's true, but I like that theory. <laughs> And then another preacher who I listened to when I was young, to a young, young, uh, young man of God, who was a great preacher, uh, had a good heart, but not necessarily good study habits. Uh, <laughs> he said, Jesus wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that <laughs> saved a wretch like me. I'm thinking, I think somebody else wrote that. <laughs> but I have to tell you, church, after hours of studying and combing through commentaries and reading, the most brilliant and astute scholars and excavating and extrapolating the complexities that are hidden within the crevices of biblical pericopes and reading the Greek syntax and the Hebrew, I finally found out what Jesus wrote on the ground that day. He's been there the whole time. Are you ready for me to tell you? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea what he wrote. And hear me, I'm not going to be distracted trying to figure out what he wrote lest I miss how he was responding. When the law oh, caught this woman in the act of her sin, there was no doubt that she was guilty. When the law caught her in the act, Jesus' response to the law was to get down on the ground, to touch the dirt. And then the Bible says something interesting. It said he raised himself up and he offered a response to the law that saved this woman's life. When the law, the law, you understand the Pharisees represented the law. When the law caught this woman in the act of her sin, there was no doubt she was guilty. When the law caught her in the act, Jesus' response to the law was to immediately get down and touch the ground and the Bible says he raised himself up and responded to the accusations of the law somebody's got to get this in here tonight when this woman was caught in the act of her sin she was guilty Jesus response to sin was to come down and touch the ground and then he raised himself up and responded to the accusations of the law ladies and gentlemen this is the God that when we were stuck in our sin, we were guilty. There was no question, but Jesus came down to earth. He put on human skin, and then he raised himself up on the cross and saved us. Come on, somebody give God some praise in this place. If you're thankful. Oh, I'm that woman. <laughs> you're that woman. We were caught in the act. There was no doubt we were guilty. 
And Jesus' response to a guilty humanity was to immediately come down from heaven to earth. And he put on human skin and he felt what I felt to the point he's touched of the feeling of my infirmities. And he raised himself up. He raised himself up to the point that he says, no man takes my life, but I lay it down. He, he raised himself up and he offered a response to the law that wanted to stone me to death. He says, he was without sin among you. Throw a stone at her first. Notice, he never doubts or denies that she should be stoned. Don't miss that. Because the law is the law. You cannot change the law. See, we're in a generation that wants to show grace, and they think in order to show grace, we have to lower the standard. But you cannot change the law. He says, you're right. You are absolutely right. She should be stoned. And I'm not denying that because the law of Moses is right. He said, I'm not denying she should be stoned. But by the law of Moses, I deny that any of you are qualified to do the stoning. He said, you're right. <laughs> she should be stoned. Just none of you are qualified to do the stoning. He says, he is without sin among you. Throw a stone at her first. And the Bible says, one by one, they dropped their rocks. Watch this. He didn't even wait on their response. Went right back down to riding on the ground. But I think we just forgot a moment. Can somebody come play? Because when soft music plays behind a preacher, he sounds more spiritual. And uh, <laughs> it's so true. I don't know if there's a towel. And then you conclude that I'm landing the sermon. Um, he says, uh, he was without sin among you, cast a stone at her first. W what does he really mean by that statement? Because people who aren't even saved, don't even go to church, will give you that scripture in a heartbeat. <laughs> they know that scripture. They say, oh, don't throw a stone at me. Don't judge me. Can't nobody judge me but God. As if that's a better option. But <laughs> <laughs> what, what is Jesus saying by this statement? Is he saying that we can't be fruit inspectors? Is he saying that we can't look at character? Actually, it's quite deeper than that if you study the text. During that time period, I hope I don't bore you tonight. During that time period, they had stringent laws as to how a stoning would take place whenever somebody was caught in the act of adultery. Because stoning was so serious. And here was the law. The law stated that two witnesses had to catch the couple in the act. Two witnesses in the act. Not coming out of the hotel room, not even just sitting on the bed, in the act. Okay, I don't need to give you the Greek to let you know what in the act means. <laughs> Two witnesses had to catch him in the act, and watch this. Then the law said, if two witnesses caught them in the act, you must bring the woman and the man and stone both. So wait a minute. Pharisees, if the law is really your concern, quick question, where is the man? <laughs> if you're really about holding up the law, where is the man? And most scholars will tell you the reason the man is not there it's because they planned it together with the Pharisees. And he most likely even had a rock, even though he participated, because they were so after catching Jesus. So you know what Jesus is saying when he says, he was without sin among you, cast the first stone? Here's what he's saying. He's going, I see you. I see you. I know what you did. You set this whole situation up, 
and you don't even realize in your self-righteousness and your arrogance that you are not different than this woman who is on the ground. She has a sin of the flesh, which is obvious. You have the sin of a filthy heart and spirit, which nobody can see. He said, and both of you need truth and grace. He is without sin among you. Cast the first stone. One by one, they dropped their rock and went away. He didn't even wait for them to leave. He was still on the ground doodling in the dirt. <laughs> then the Bible says he raised himself up the second time and went to her and says, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Where are those accusers? Can you see this in your mind? This is how I see it. The whole time her head has been down. She's been crying. Keeps remembering the guilt, the shame. She knows she's about to die. She says, surely he's a rabbi. He's got to uphold the law. I'm about to die because of my sin, because of my mistakes. I think her head was down the whole time in Jesus. She's just weeping. And Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? I believe she was crying so hard, she didn't realize they had left. And I think she goes, Jesus, how can you ask me where are my accusers? You don't see all of these. See, sometimes the enemy will keep reminding you of your sin and your shame that you don't even realize Jesus has paid the price for the thing that you keep beating yourself about. Come on, he's already covered it. He's already paid the price. Why do you keep beating up yourself? She goes, I have none. She says, Lord, are you going to condemn me? Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. All of a sudden, this woman experiences an encounter with grace and truth. And in my mind, because I'm crazy like this, I can see the disciples there. And I can see loudmouth Peter after the woman is left. I can see Peter going, oh, what? Jesus, that's it? You're just going to let her leave like that? Oh, you always getting us in trouble. You're a rabbi. You got to uphold the law. You're just going to let her leave. Somebody got to pay the price. I can see Jesus going, shut up, Peter. <laughs> Says, Peter, uh, Says somebody is going to pay the price. Somebody is going to be stoned. Somebody's going to be beaten. It's not going to be her. It's not going to be the Pharisees. Peter, it's not even going to be you, which, by the way, fast forward, you're going to deny me three times. See, the person that's going to take the stoning in her place is going to be me. He said, I'm going to take the punishment. And I can see Peter going, how can you do that? Peter, is easy. I'm full of it. I am full of grace and truth. Come on, this is the beauty of our Savior. He is full of it. I'm just going to ask in this moment, every head be bowed and every eye be closed. And Jesus, I thank you tonight for your word. God, I pray that somehow in my words and my sentences and and all that I felt like you spoke to me, I pray your Holy Spirit spoke to the hearts of your people. Thank you for being a Savior that is full of it, full of grace, full of truth. Thank you that every time we encounter you, we are intoxicated by your grace. We stand in awe of your truth that transforms us from the inside out. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed all over this place today. I'm just wondering tonight, 
Maybe you're in this place and you feel like that woman. You feel the shame. You feel the guilt. You may feel like Jesus has a rock and he's just waiting to knock you upside the head. And I came to tell you tonight, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. Being here tonight and you say, you know what, I've just been wrestling with that shame and I need to encounter this Savior, his grace and his truth, just right where you are. It's not to embarrass you. It's just between you and God. You're saying, I just, I've been feeling that weight of shame and I need to encounter him tonight. If that's you, would you just lift up your hand right where you are? I believe his, his grace and his truth is going to meet you right where you are right now. Just lift it up and put it right back down. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you right now in this moment. Your peace that passes all understanding comes to them. God, that you would just take off that weight of shame. Thank you for it tonight. What else is the response to this message? Let us be a body of believers who is not quick to pick up stones and throw rocks. But Lord, let us as believers, as followers of Christ, be so full of grace and truth. How awesome would it be that when people talk about Embassy City Church, they'll say that is a church that is full of believers that are full of it, (laughs) full of grace and truth. Come on, if you desire that, why don't you just stand to your feet all over this place. Say, I want to be that believer that is full of grace and truth. Just stand to your feet. Say, I want that. Come on, let's just ask him for it and let's just close with this prayer. Would you say this from your heart? Say, dear Jesus, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for being full of it. Now, Lord, I ask you to help me to be full of it, of grace and truth. So that when people see my life, they will encounter the beauty of who you are. I love you, Jesus. Amen. 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 Come on, give God some praise if you're in it.